it's a field in some areas of the world is like highly developed but in most areas of the world it's outreach is considered as a fun thing and it's sort of like fun learning but it's actually much more than that Hey guys, welcome to the Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Akram Wahabi, and today our guest is Dr. Telinia Hinatiglo. He's a science communicator with a background in astronomy. He is now the Director of Communications at the Earth Life Science Institute in Tokyo. His story with how he got interested in astronomy and then how he moved into science communication is quite intriguing. And if you watch the interview, you will see for yourself how a simple action of promoting science, especially to the younger generation can result in a person becoming so interested and engaged in the subject that they would build their whole career around it. As usual, before we get into the episode, I would like to ask you to subscribe and or follow the podcast and let's get to it. Hello, Dr. Telena. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, please introduce yourself to us. Like, uh, Of course, I, I already introduced you before we start this, but how would you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Hi, Akram, and hi, everyone. Uh, I'm happy to join this podcast. And uh, yes, so if I introduce myself to somebody, I would always, I, I live in Japan, but I always emphasize that I am uh, from Sri Lanka, which is a developing country. So I spend most of my time in outside of the country uh, in, in Europe and uh, grow up like, with studies and, and work, which eventually brought me to Japan, which I have been here for three years. So, but I usually introduce myself as a science communicator with a background in astronomy and uh, somebody who's uh, working towards um, communicating scientific ideas with different stakeholders, especially public, and also evaluating how we actually communicate these things and how do we reach into society. And, and I'm quite passionate about trying to sort of help to develop uh, astronomy and sciences in developing countries since I come from there. And apart from science, I'm very much of an avid uh, hiker, a mountain climber, and uh, and I write poetry. Uh, so those are the things I sort of try to keep my balance between science and the rest of the time. I, I saw you do photography also. Like at least you wrote you write that on your Twitter. Yeah, that that was my past hobby. I, I tend to stick with one for a few years. And then once I do like, a, for example, for photography, I did an exhibition, then I'm done with that. So moved on to something else. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, how can I say like, um, you're, you have a background in astronomy, and you're a science communicator. And uh, it's, I, I think, uh, science communicators like come from different types of fields, right? But astronomy, especially, has this wow to it, you know, like everybody just keep, you know, gets pulled to it immediately. So how was it just like a natural development during like your studies that you wanted to become a science communicator? Or like, how did it lead you to this path, to this career path? Um, so I don't come from a family uh, of any kind of sciences. 
Mm-hmm. And and in fact, before me, there's nobody in the family tree who did science. So, which means it was also a mystery for me how on earth I ended up here. But interestingly, as since as as uh, as long as I can remember, I was always interested in science and, and uh, curiosity of different things. And. Uh, because I, I mean, I wish I had a cool story where I can say, oh, I had this teacher who inspired me, but I didn't have any of that. I actually had the opposite of that. Where so much of discouragement, especially growing up in Sri Lanka, it's, uh, which makes sense because in developing countries, you have to sort of also think a bit realistically what's ma- what matters to the country and what are the resources available. So like becoming a lawyer, engineer, teacher, uh, a doctor are the usual areas to go into. And if you choose something like astronomy, it's quite difficult because there are no resources and there's no pathways and can be expensive. I can only imagine. Yeah, but you can do it if you really, you know, work hard on it. But so I think I was quite inspired by as a child, just looking into stars and trying to really uh, learn. And also I was, I was always uh, some, as a child, even like I had the passion to teach, like I would learn something and then I would tell my friends or my family, like trying always, always I was sharing. And I think that came naturally growing up, you know, to become a science communicator. And I'm, I'm glad I ended up in astronomy because it's such a, it's one of the sciences that's so connected with all, any different culture. You go anywhere on, uh, around the world. And I've been lucky enough to travel to 52 countries. And wow. anywhere 52? you go, wow. <laughs> anywhere you go, you can always have a conversation about stars and the skies because there's some cultural story. So it, it gives a natural you know, pathway into science communication and astronomy. Yeah. So this is what, uh, like, what that was what, like, what I asked about. Like, there's kind of an innate connection there. Like, it's kind of easy to, you know, to start talking to people about stars, right? Like, people like the skies and stars. I don't think I've met somebody who hates stars, anyways. Yeah. So, uh, can I ask you what was your PhD about? What was your research about? Yeah. So I. Uh, my PhD is quite interesting, uh, at least, I mean, for me. <laughs> oh, it better be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I focused on sort of, uh, instead of focusing on actually one scientific topic, I started, like, I focused on uh, research on explanatory modeling and how... In, uh, research and what? So I don't think let, I heard it me, clearly. Let me actually uh, take a step back. I decided to do a project where we focus on research and then how to communicate it and then do outreach with that and then also bring that back to stakeholders like policymakers to raise funding. So it's a, I mean, it's a long-term project, uh, but because... Uh, I was never a full-time student. I I was lucky enough to work and then contribute my work into my studies. And uh, 
So starting from exoplanet modeling and exoplanets, uh, like doing astrometry with exoplanets and trying to figure out how to actually use some of our big data and uh, create models for these. And then, and then, but rather than actually going deep into one particular exoplanet itself or one object, I wanted to have a, like a bit of a broad idea and then bring, how do you communicate that idea with public? And then you, come you, up with like outreach activity and then evaluate that outreach and then take this science and so the society results into to a funding. So I applied for a grant and which is for policymakers to decide. And, and then sort of it's, it's sort of like this whole cycle where you do research, communicate, get more money and then keep doing it, you know. So basically like that was kind of science communication or like the principle of science communication was baked into your PhD basically, right? Okay, so when you were talking, uh, you, you mentioned something about an exoplanet. Exoplanet, yes, so, what does that mean? Yeah, so exoplanet is... Um, so we are on Earth and right now we are the only living planet, as we know. And uh, so exoplanet is basically an Earth-like planet. So any, and there are so many other planets. There are about 4,000 and more than 4,000 planets discovered so far. And more than, sorry, let me clarify, more than 4,000 Exoplanets. Exoplanets, yeah. I was like, I, there better be more <laughs> than just 4,000. And, yeah. and these are the planets which are similar to sort of Earth, and but they're completely different in sizes and shape, and like, you know, where they're located and so on. But potentially, these are the places that could have uh, have life, like some form of, form of life. And uh, and this, this is such an important area of studies. And... If you look at all the past, like recent uh, space missions and even building bigger telescopes, a lot of them are focused on this particular area because we do need to find uh, Earth-like planets. Why? Do you know something that we don't? No, we definitely <laughs> don't. But hopefully, I mean, I think one of the questions that, not just scientists, I, I think one of the questions as, as you know, as humans we have yeah. is are we alone are there any other life form out there i was about to ask you that like what what's the science opinion on that because if you think about it i i mean personally I, first i've i've heard it like i don't know if you're into stand-up comedy uh -huh. but uh do you know eddie griffin yeah 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 i mean there was one when one of his stand-up shows he he went like you believe in you know extraterrestrial life and so on and so forth and then people who said no he said you're arrogant <laughs> and and it's really like in this whole vast universe we can't be the only ones alive right or at least in this form maybe but I, mean, I don't know it would be such a waste just if it is just us right? it's such a big universe and plenty yeah, of, right? plenty of share. <laughs> yeah and then but yeah. scientifically i think um, what we need to also understand what is uh, rather than looking at it as a belief but rather looking at I mean you can look at it as in a philosophical way but 
we first need to understand you know when we say are we alone or are there any kind of life forms we we should open up like broaden our minds that life can exist in so many different ways and not just as you know human shapes or human intelligence level it could be more or it could be much less in a microbial level and but when scientists uh, who are focused on uh, life and specifically which are like actually we are going into astrobiology they are more interested in even looking into microbial level at that level if we can if one of any of these planets can have that form of life because that's still such a would be such a discovery within our lifetime if that happens uh so it's quite i think as public we always as a society we have this question but we always ask this question thinking like human level life form but i think it's really important to broaden our life because even on earth there's so many hundreds of hundreds of different species right so we are looking for any kind of life i mean i think i think i've heard the word like searching for intelligence like if some intelligent beings are out there right it it shouldn't be like as living as we understand what living is like or maybe like et with that finger but you know well i, I think of... there are like there are groups specifically looking for those but um it, but it also means like you are assuming that an intelligent life is also looking to connect and communicate so that's sort of the difference between looking for intelligent life where you are assuming that life form is able to sort of communicate like receive our communications because there are groups trying to communicate yeah. and then also groups trying trying to find messages and you know other uh, signals so that's a whole different research area study area that people are doing that and then there's a whole different research area that trying to find any form of life uh, yeah. forgive me for my ignorance ignorance like you're the first scientist like astronomical scientist that i uh, i interviewed also i mean uh, as a as this is completely not my field so i'm pretty sure you can read and understand much more than me in these areas since it's not my expertise well i still believe like you know a lot more than you're saying but it's fine uh i i wanted to ask you like like basically you answered me a little bit earlier that your phd basically had some science communication form in it but how did your career actually how can i say come to be in science communication so I think it's I it start bit of a with bit of a struggle because I I had to go a bit uh, like couple of decades back so as growing up as a child in Sri Lanka one of the hardest things as I mentioned in the beginning is to get into a field uh, like astronomy until I mean I I I I I was studying in Sri Lanka throughout my uh, school career 
and pretty much any teacher you go to there's i mean you can't also blame the teachers because they are not exposed to other careers like this it's completely new for them so they try to push you to areas that they are aware that's more realistic locally so there was a lot of discouragement and uh, even with my family because it's completely new to them it's not un i mean it's completely unheard of so um, and i wanted to find ways one of the reasons is like going into science communication is that i wanted to find ways that we communicate uh, specifically astronomy not just with the public but in a way that other students in in developing countries especially get the opportunity to study further and so when i say i like to communicate astronomy and like sciences in general it's just not about the topic itself it's about like what's the value of topic to the society what's the how do you do it and how do you actually follow that path so at any given point and i was doing outreach lots as even as a you know school student um, um i i can share a very quick uh, story that i really really loved so uh growing up in sri lanka that so we didn't have i mean this is a time that internet was internet just came to sri lanka and then so there there was this internet cafes cyber cafes popping up and there was this one close to my high school and it's really expensive to use internet at that time so what we did bunch of us like my close friends we we would sort of like you know save our allowance for the week and then like end of the week go to a cafe and spend few hours so i would write and i i and i would read about astronomy because that's that was only way you can't even find books in library because it's not a subject not that's a thing, yeah yes. so i would spend hours and hours but then i found out oh you can actually do it as a career and then i found out oh there are so many astronomers around the world and there's this plenty of emails and names because back then there's there's no privacy issues like everything was like whole your home address to office address everything was online and and i and i found this directory of uh, astronomers around the world and it was a to z and i started emailing every single person saying i was a 13 year old child i love studying astronomy and i don't know but i don't know how to do it and so on so i did that for months and months and then finally somebody re- responded and that person ended up sending me a book like a college textbook 101 uh, textbook that undergraduate student uh, use but this was way too advanced for me because i, I think i was around 14 but i i have read it so many times to understand it and my friends who we like this this in a small astronomy club we all read that book one book and we although all of us are doing in in science doing science right now in, in as a career uh and oh. and uh, and one of the person who sent me some stuff i met them about 20 years later i mean they are that person is actually retired and um, quite old but he happened to be at a keynote speech keynote talk i gave and i after the keynote talk he, this person came to me and i didn't recognize because it's been 20 years that person said oh i sent a book to a boy in sri lanka like 20 years ago 
and i can't remember and I was, yeah and i and i had to look up the name and i because my dad actually has every single person name of every single person who sent me something like a reading material so i call up dad and then he found the yeah that that this is the this is a person and and i told him like, next day at the conference and he was crying in such a happy moment but it, i mean it makes it it's i can imagine like one person like sending a book help to build someone else's career he basically kickstarted your career so i tell honest, these yeah. kind of stories even to uh, like astronomers right now and scientists because any spare time you spend like a few minutes uh, in public talking to somebody on the street or giving a talk or giving advice can change somebody's life yeah <laughs> yeah exhibit a <laughs> this is awesome to be honest like well this this got you interested in astronomy right like this is how you like how you completely you it, know. it's how i i started getting into knowledge of astronomy because i was always curious i wanted to know so many things but there's no way like the knowledge part was missing it was more like me questioning without getting answers so it really needed these resources to learn and that's how i sort of i started and then science communication sort of came naturally and i felt like i wanted to move more away from just rather astronomy or astronomy even outreach but move more towards science communication itself okay, so you mentioned that uh, there were there were difficulties that you faced dude like just being in sri lanka cuz you know it's still obviously like i'm also from a third world country and we all know like it's not as developed and as we wish it would be so did, what can you mention some of the difficulties that you faced maybe not just under like in your undergrads but during your phd especially cuz you know doing research in general is not an easy thing or doing your phd is not easy like you always have to kind of make up new ideas start new you know projects so what were the difficulties that you found during your research so during i think also it's a bit difficult for me to think as a student student because i never was really a full time student because i was lucky enough to sort of work at universities and then uh there are ways so there are many ways to do your studies the most standard ways is you actually get into university and study as a full time student but now there are so many different ways where you work you work as a science communicator or you work as a uh researcher but you basically contribute your work into publishing papers which builds up to a, a phd or or a master or even undergraduate at some point so i think there are some things i can relate uh, but i was never like a st- struggling student 
because I had a job and mm-hmm. so I can't relate to those but there are things sort of I can relate in a way sort of um, that coming from a developing country and also being a minority there are disadvantages there are so many different grant programs and funding opportunities that you cannot apply just because where you come from even if you are in living in working in Europe or living in working in Japan it you disqualify from just because you are coming from a different country and uh, so that side of things can be difficult and uh, and also in terms of uh, but I also found that it can be an advantage where you sort of work you're, you you have to work a bit harder you have to think out of the box and I in a way, I mean, I, I, I always feel like I'm lucky I was born in Sri Lanka because you always have to push your limits. You always have to sort of think out of outside of the box. And uh, yeah, so I think the one of the most difficulties that I can share is like funding and yeah. that opportunity and not just like being like being eligible for funding so i mean can you i don't know if (laughs) i'm I'm digging too deep now but can you talk to us about the program that you were in the phd program because my understanding was like for phd like students but you already told us like you're not you're not a regular phd student Funding would be managed by, you know, the department itself. They would look for grants and then students. Yeah, of course, students can apply for their own grants, but for, you know, for funding. But usually it's the professor or like the, you know, the teaching staff uh, job to acquire funding. So from your case you said like you were suffering like funding funding is always a problem with everybody so how were you, was your experience in you know what in this program like how what did it entail that you also had to look for funding yourself yeah. and even even actually for students it's a it's an issue even though they don't have to apply themselves because uh, like one good example i can give that students uh, are struggling that I found out when when I moved to Japan is that so your supervisor has the funding that supervisor can allocate but it almost always goes according to seniority so if you are quite younger but but doing like really good work it takes a while to go to a conference it takes a while to present something and and also even like in europe i mean in some of the western countries there are student funding and so on uh, unfortunately some of the some of the areas even though japan is developed those sort of opportunities are not so common 
and so that uh, you, I see these students are struggling in in that way. But in for for us, uh, what we had was like in order to develop a new project idea that can. So when I always say a project, usually it's a it can be a uh, like a combination of research and science communication or outreach project that usually has a outcome of a, uh, analysis where you have like evaluation or lesson learned and best practices, something that uh, other people can use. But in order to do, do this, you have to apply for funding and get the money. And those are always quite difficult. And uh, I think that's uh, sort of the difficulty that if you uh, follow a path like I did where you find a job, but then you have to also apply. There's no supervisor. So you have to sort of really manage yourself and apply for funding for the projects you want to do and the areas you want to you wanna, uh, develop and supervise yourself. Damn, <laughs> I would not imagine doing my PhD by myself. That must have been tough. Well, I think it's it's all. I believe it's. I mean, technically, you do have like supervisors who who guide you and provide advi advice you, but but these are not traditional supervisors that provide funding for you. And so it's mostly like the guiding and advices, but it's really good system like and i see more and more people are doing it because this is quite common in the business world people who are doing like in corporate culture you you get a job at such a young age and, and doing an mba is so common during your career during your work right and that mba adds more to your career to go forward and and that's why these uh, afternoon classes or evening classes and all these started especially for corporate culture right and 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 i'm glad that it's coming into academia like into sciences as well because it, <laughs> for scientists it take it actually takes a long time to start earning Oh yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, and and it's becoming a bit more unrealistic the how how you know how much of how the world is moving, and uh, so I, I think it's it's a good way that we give find a way to give a salary or or a job to and while you study, and it's also really good because you you get to apply what you learn on the go and so there i mean i i i think for me it was like a almost trial and error trial and error. you know i got to use what i learned immediately without waiting for years and years and i think that was such a good advantage i don't want to say you got lucky because it's basically you did not get lucky you worked for it but basically you know, working and doing your PhD and continuing your career makes a lot more sense than, you know, stopping and then doing your PhD. Actually, I don't know if it makes sense because PhD is so terribly difficult that it's, I don't know, it's like a suicide mission to do both at the same time. But, you know, 
doing your PhD and then starting to look for a job afterwards, that's a whole another headache, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I see how more and more it's difficult for students to go find jobs. And, and also it's a good argument. A lot of people are, you know, discussing this, like we are trying to always encourage students to go into STEM careers. But then if you compare the number of jobs available and number of PhDs coming out, it's it's completely off. So a lot of people are luckily now there's a trend sort of like some years ago started, you know, PhDs in sciences goes into uh, corporate uh, like companies and working as data scientists or, you know, chemical analysts and so on. And which with much higher benefits and salaries and so on, which is really nice. But some of them actually really, really want to be in, in academia to do research and teaching. I love teaching. I mean, there are people who really love teaching, but then the number of jobs are really limited, right? So there's also a debate, you know, how much do you should encourage somebody to go have a career in science? Do you without, you know, do you guarantee a job or you just give the knowledge and good luck to you? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, because I, I, for me, I think the biggest problem with not problem, I think the biggest difficulty for PhD graduates is that they know a lot about a very small thing. Basically, they research and they could talk about it for hours, probably, but it's a very <laughs> like, you know, very specific thing. And then once you apply for jobs and they see you are all like holding a PhD, then you're automatically overqualified for many of the jobs. And that's kind of ends up being kind of like counterproductive or, you know, career wise, you know. So what do you think about this part? <laughs> Should, shouldn't people continue science career in no, science? No, I think the way, I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it'll change, but the way we do studies and the way we, you know, re, re, scientific research is going to continue regardless. But the way the education system needs to evolve, how we study things, how we has to... I'm always looking into, you know, industries like fashion and, you know, other uh, like law firms and, and, you know, fields of law and field of fashion and uh, even, uh, you know, uh, more overall like business startups. If you look at these different areas, they're much, they're, they do completely different how they do education and, and work. A lot of people, a lot of them are, you know, a lot of the like fashion degrees or low firm, low degrees, you've, you have to go out to a company to get your uh, experience and, and get paid during your studies, not once you finish, because it's part of your studies to be out there and, and try to uh, get some experience and also uh, find jobs. So. And, and there are, those fields are more hands-on in terms of what you study from education, your, your basic education at the university and also, you know, gaining experience goes hands in hand in hand. 
And I, I think in, in basic sciences like life sciences, that's something we should encourage to, you know, maybe the students can start teaching something like not in a, not in the current system where we have teaching assistant, like some of them just collect papers and, you know, do very basic analysis, but really maybe, you know, think of education a bit differently going forward. And not not get the students to starve until they turn like thirty <laughs> to get a good job. I I couldn't agree more with you because uh, yeah, it needs to be changed because this now this is like a pyramid, right? Like the whole you know academic system right now. I don't think how how much longer can it hold in the in the current format? Because obviously we have so many PhD graduates and very few positions and uh, it's it's a it's a bit crazy if you think about about it like career-wise as a career option um we were talking about the difficulties <laughs> so far um obviously you're fascinated by you know the sky's astronomy and so on what what was like the what if we can say astronomy wise and science communication wise what is the most exciting part about these career options? Um, for I think for me, <clears throat> there are, uh, you know, different aspects of what I love that I really enjoy. Like, I always enjoy doing public engagement, but in a more, not like a, or, you know, going to a school, giving a talk, but more strategic. We, we, I, we call it evidence-based outreach. So instead of doing fun learning where you just give a talk or do a really fun activity, we have to look at these outreach and science communication effort in a more standardized way. And uh, because it's a field in some areas of the world is like highly developed, but in most areas of the world, it's outreach is considered as a fun thing. And it's sort of like fun learning, but it's actually much more than that. You, first of all, we, we every, every person in like every scientist, every policymaker need to understand that all like all, almost all the sciences is funded by taxpayers money. Right. And we need to justify that. And so the, in order to, one of the ways to justify is actually to communicate the research you do. But it's not really, uh, I mean, it's you can of course go to a school and give a talk. But you don't really have to stop there. You There are like people like me, science communicators come in and sort of, develop models or frameworks or help to sort of do that uh, research communication in a more strategic way. So you do evidence-based outreach where you analyze what public learn and then sort of determine the science and the society connection, how our science sort of improves the scientific literacy in the society, but through outreach. So I'm quite excited with this aspect that we 
get to do outreach which with generates evidence that we can show this is how our research is providing knowledge to improve scientific literacy of the society and on the other aspect completely different i'm quite uh, keen on working on inclusive science uh, inclusive academic practices and especially uh, decolonizing science and decolonizing astronomy and uh, because the we in academia it's a huge issue it's a really really big problem and coming from a colonial country and this is really really relevant for me and what i experienced outside of academia just growing up in sri lanka is completely reflected in academia and and that's something we can easily i mean not easily that's something we can work on fixing and doing better because unlike 500 years ago when every all these nations were colonizing we didn't have the knowledge but we have the knowledge today and we can avoid this colonizing what do you mean by colonizing science i i've, I've obviously i watched the video that you sent me yeah. but our listeners i don't think if they're familiar with this concept yeah. so yeah. please so, talk about it a little bit uh so i think de forgetting about just science just in general uh that you have if we take decolonizing what is decolonizing so i see decolonizing as the action or a process of a state withdrawing from a former colony so once some state has colonized uh, uh, an area or a country or whatever so decolonizing is like the process of withdrawing and leaving it completely independent and and then colonialism itself is sort of like you know that you enforce this political act where one party sort of cedes power Uh, on another and it's and then it results in this really big economical gains for the colonizer and but economic cultural historical geographical uh issues for the colonized and so that's the basic ideas of you know colonialism and decolonizing you know and i think th- those are really easy to understand sure somebody colonized like probably yeah. <laughs> many people are familiar with this concept so and then the then we need to understand post colonialism so which is sort of after colo- you know you withdraw and then you go into this phase called post colonialism which is like aftermath of colonialism and i think the one of the problem is that a lot of the people sort of like imagine that you give the independence to a country for example and that sort of like you know the end of colonization but that's that's the day that post colonialism starts where it's going to take years and years 
to recover from what happened during the colonial time. And uh, so this this whole process of understanding and it's it's from social sciences you we try to understand the effects and and in many cultures this is so so much uh, visible so how but how what is how is it relevant in academia because yeah so the, this is what yeah <laughs> yeah so we we sort of like can understand normal like in our color what is colonizing and so on but what's how does it applicable in academia or in sciences especially? So, in science, we have inclusive inclusive issues like accessibility and so many gender issues and so on. And in so in in academia, the way we when we say decolonizing academia. It goes simply beyond like racial redress or aims to connect the uh, society produced by this knowledge. I can give you an example that everyone can easily understand. So we we tend to uh, there are so many times that a lot of. Uh, Western scientist has gone into developing countries to do a project. And, and sometimes these projects are done without any local experts collaborated. And they go in completely independently and do their thing and then leave. And, and then you sort of collaborate with somebody locally, but sort of go into a country and do one project and then leave and it, it's also called parachute science so imagine like a, somebody going into a country and do one of things without thinking about like how this is relevant locally and how this is actually can develop local knowledge or the expertise and what what's the sort of long-term thing and uh, so these are the things that we need to decolonize like how do we sort of do it in a better way uh, and it's not really about stopping these actions but doing it better and one, one good another example is like uh, just like NASA in in Europe we have the European Space Agency and if you sort of browse around some of the websites they have you can easily find the way presented these Europeans, once explorers, always explorers. But yeah, Europe was exploring, but mostly to colonize also. And I think we have to move past that narrative and think, I mean, we because we have enough knowledge and experience from the past, past centuries and to <laughs> rephrase these narratives not like explorers or discovering these new worlds in the way like within within the within our world mm. um, and then <laughs> i can give you another example yeah. if yeah. you have if you allow me so of we course, have yeah. these really big projects like we are and everyone is example excited about like building the next big telescope or next uh, satellite and so on 
And as some of these big research infrastructures are, if you look at the locations, some of them are actually based at interesting parts of the world. And uh, so when, when the money and the project come from like the global north and especially from the west and you you go to globe you set it up in the global south let's say africa uh, and you set up the pro project in africa and you nowadays you have these policies of you we have to give like certain amount of jobs locally we are going to allow local students to come and so on and and these are actually good practices because you engage with local and help bringing this project and these billions of dollars worth project locally uh, helps local economy, local education and expanding their science and so on. And But eventually for science what matters also is the outcome and the way we check the outcome is publishing research papers and some of these infrastructures if you look at the research papers first author and most of the authors are from western countries and so very few local scientists are actually involved as a first author paper um, author so it's also this wise whites and and there's so many arguments against this are uh, saying oh but we are providing resources yeah where, where do you see the problem is like if like should if they like for example for the like the example that you gave if they build a telescope or a satellite in this certain area should they also provide you know scholarships for the locals to be able to study in the same field is this one of the solutions that you think would solve this problem so i think we we have to really take into the account how like what is this infra so any infrastructure helps the sciences no question there but when we build a project we have to look into okay we need to hire like definitely a lot of lo engineers are involved so local expertise local engineers and then local policy makers policies are important and then local students giving opportunities to local students and but also there are local scientists involved in the same topic so they do also need to have access to these facilities so they can also publish papers as a first author. And the, the argument about this, uh, there's an argument saying that, uh, oh, but we are, this is an investment in allocating funds and human capital development. And, but that's actually also known as white savior syndrome, where White yeah. Savior Syndrome? Yeah, White Savior Syndrome. It's a, okay. a, a study done a couple of years ago where just because you give resources doesn't mean that it actually helps local for the exactly work for the local benefit. But there's a White Savior Syndrome thinking like a lot of the uh, global north and western where just because you give the money and the, the uh, resources, it helps and that's the that's what we do and you should appreciate it and 
but so that these are the things we should do in a better way so these are not bad but like it should be done in a much more yeah. you know and, and it's and it's okay actually to i think first first uh step is that we need to acknowledge that these things are happening and and slowly build and go into the path that to improve it because it's not about we shouldn't collaborate we should not do this project we need this project we need to have international collaborations and and expand i mean it, it helps to expand but for example when you build uh, some of these big uh, infrastructures you open jobs right and there's a huge discrepancy the salaries of at these facilities for some for an international scientist and someone hired locally yeah so those are the things you can change because i mean we also need to it's a it's a, it's also a conversation and it's also a matter of policies because in order to bring someone from another country to different country you are essentially looking for a, that person is looking for a better opportunity right someone wouldn't necessarily go to another country unless you get a better opportunity i mean there yes. are instances of course you would go because of other reasons but at this particular case uh you so in order to attract like a really uh high end like highly skilled expert you had to give an attractive salary attractive package exactly because yeah. they're basically leaving where they live exactly. to be in another yeah. place yeah and then but on the other hand somebody hiring locally you, there are evidences that we that some of these research infrastructures actually give a complete local salary where the, because that person doesn't uh, is not coming from international uh uh country i mean different country but then the facility itself is an international facility so you need to come like with better policies how to you know meet halfway how to improve this because that there, there are instances like it's the same job two different people doing from you know one local happen to be local so the compensation should not be hugely in, in proportionate yeah. right like yeah. that's what that's what you're like <laughs> i think you're trying to emphasize and yeah it it makes a lot of sense okay so this was like uh decolonizing sciences right that's yeah. what we were yeah. discussing and uh obviously like you said like this is one of the things that you're passionate about and like uh talk about uh, i would like to ask you about um people don't really know much about science communication which is very weird i mean as a field i i remember uh 2 years ago i posted a question on research gate uh, and it said like have you heard of dental science uh science communication in dentistry basically uh, i'm a dentist and that's why i asked and nobody really knew this kind of thing they were like some people like i i think one one of the people who answered basically copied and pasted out the wikipedia definition <laughs> which which proves my point 
people like don't really hear about science communication a lot as much as at least I would hope for, right? So it as a part of your job, what what how do you define science communication? And what is what does your job entail as a science communicator? So you are right that science, you know science communication itself is still I mean it, as a career as a field it's I mean it, it does have a like uh, some history but only like recently became as a Field. field, right? Yeah. yeah, because any 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 given time historically, whenever a, a scientist try to explain science to a public or a stakeholder or to another science scientist from a different field, that's science communication. And but only in in recently it became. Uh, like this uh, knowledge hub a field so and i think it's a good uh, in science communication that's a good way to go forward because it's so it has been the sort of the missing link between the science and and the society and uh, so i always i i really like to introduce myself always as a science communicator without really bringing up anything to do with science research uh, like in astronomy, because a lot of the public are not aware of you know science communication as a field. So I, I like to sort of introduce myself. I'm the person that sits between you know research and and public at large and try to sort of explain these simple to uh, com complex scientific ideas in a way that anyone can understand and and also ideally in a way that we communicate this so it helps people to improve their scientific literacy i and that's a, that eventually that should be the key that we as a society we help by doing outreach or science communication, what, any kind of activity that we sort of provide help to improve scientific literacy. And this happened to be more important today than before because we now have so many, like, the access to information has become so big you are one click away from finding out anything you want but that also has built so much of mistrust in science because there are so many fake news and pseudoscience out there yeah and those get around much more because they, they build on fear they, yeah, build, they build on, on you know fear yeah. they, they are also written by people who are sort of not from the scientific fields uh, and so it's much bit more attractive because they are like, like all these headlines are tabloid type more attractive more interesting and so it gets around more 
And uh, so building scientific literacy is more important today even than yesterday because we are enabling people to think logically and to gain their improve their knowledge so they can eventually you know determine how about like the scientific process and how how these things works um and that's why most what i'm also really excited about you know doing this science communication that we enable public and also stakeholders like especially like even politicians you know get them to understand what is you know what's important in science what is real like, real facts and so on it's so you being a science communicator and working for earth life sciences institute what does your job entail like what what are like something that you do on a daily basis for example so the at earth life science institute we are focused on uh, it's a interdisciplinary institute where we have astronomers biologists chemists machine learning uh, programmers and we all work together and also one science communicator so we all work together one science communicator being you yeah and, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we all work together uh, to study origin of life and earth and uh, because this is origin of life and earth is a interdisciplinary field it's not like physics or astronomy and it's you need this combination of knowledge hubs to to sort of research and study that field and also it makes it quite difficult to bring that knowledge and the result, research results we have into public so my role i work on some different levels so uh, one is i we i manage outreach efforts at our institutes um like engaging with public and engage with media or uh, schools and visitors and all that so we have a small team just dedicated to outreach and then i also focus on training our researchers how to communicate their research because it's you know as i said we have the research science communicator and the stakeholders this this model but it's also at the same time you're doing this it's important to train scientists to learn how to communicate their research not just with public but even between them and especially this is really important at our institute because they are coming from completely different fields and and they don't speak the same language so you need to train how to you know by giving them uh doing conducting workshops and training and how to do this communication with your peers and with students and with, with public and so on and then we uh, have a graduate program uh, in japan it's a, a two plus three a master phd graduate program in in origin of life and uh, and we managed to include as a part of, as include in in this graduate program science communication 
so it's not uh, elective or select you know it's part of your graduate program you and then we also have a, a industry connection part in the graduate program so our idea is to build a build like graduates who are capable of communicating their research and also engaging with industry so they have necessary by the time they graduate they have these necessary skills to go forward they can you know go into academia or they can go into industry so we created and it's quite unique in japan to allow this I mean, it wasn't easy to create this course because... That was my next question, actually. <laughs> in Japan, how does this work? Because I know we just said like science communication as a field is relatively new, right? Yeah. But in Japan, I, I feel like it's also like even younger yes. in maturation, yes. right? It's Japan, science communication in Japan is at a very, very... Uh, uh, early stage in terms of development. Uh, so, for example, there are no science communication degrees in Japan. You can't, there's no undergraduate or master. Potentially, you can do like a PhD with like, but with a supervisor who has some relevant, like connection to science communication and maybe about like uh, uh, gender in STEM or some science and society. And but there's no like a ongoing program so so there's a huge gap and a huge you know area that to be developed in science communication in japan and so what what are the reasons that sorry to interrupt you sure, sure. I'm, I'm really sorry but what are the reasons from your point of view for this gap like why isn't japan and Japan, as we all know, like it's one of the leading countries, like in technology and in, yeah. in, in, you know, in engineering, probably too. Um, why so, is it still not catching up to the rest of the world? I, I think one of the major reasons is actually the language. Science communication is largely, as a field, is improved in English because. If you look at all the models and frameworks and everything pretty much as a field is largely done in English. But if you, for example, look at a field like astronomy, you can still find plenty of studies done in different languages. You, you can find uh, almost all areas of astronomy in English, but you can also find localized knowledge. But in science communication, localized knowledge is still really, really low. And so language barrier is one of the problems. But other issue is Japanese academia is still quite traditional. So even though Japan is a G7 country and one of the biggest spenders in science in, in, in the world, but the outcome is really low. Actually, outcome is one of the lowest in in the top countries. I just uh, saw I yeah. just saw a recent ranking. They they rank last in the top ten. Yeah. So recently, there was a, a article on science, and then also on, on uh, Japan Today. I think it also covered, 
and and because of this the government kicked off a new uh, grant program also to sort of support try to try to get university to to do better but so japan academia also you know at a stage it's quite struggling science communication for universities is still not a priority it's there's no yeah. sort of space and funding to allocate like a new program and so on so in a way i mean my plan and my i mean now i'm publicly sharing my dream my plan in japan but my my reason to stay in japan uh the longer than i uh, that i planned would be to actually set up the first graduate program in science communication and sort of pathway to that the first step to that is you know including science communication part of, as a part of our graduate program and hopefully this will uh generate sort of a, as an example to create a program or a department in science communication and and i looked in i looked pretty much many different uh, national universities in japan to see if anyone else has included science communication as a, as in the graduate program but as far according to my knowledge there's no graduate program that has science communication so this might be the first one but in many universities you can take communication courses as electives as optional courses science communication as as a course science communication i think maybe the university of sciences in okinawa is one offering something yeah, like that so, as an internship yeah so there are like other programs like internship there's internship uh, like a fellowship in hiroshima there's internships in oist in okinawa and then there are courses uh, non credited courses in uh, hokkaido yeah. so but, but not a real program yeah, right so not in a science graduate program mm. okay so <laughs> we've been talking about science communication for a while now uh from your point of view if somebody's interested in science communication or pursuing a science communication career what what would be your advice to them i i think i i like the way that science communication is taught in netherlands uh so many of the dutch um, universities has science communication and uh, which starts as master level and let's say it's a two year master course and ideally the person would spend like a year about a year of time in that master learning the science that they want to communicate and then another like about a year of time within these two years you learn about communication strategies and skills and everything because it's we it's re, it's important to have scientific knowledge sort of so you actually understand a uh, bit better how to support academia how to support scientists how to support students 
and uh, because you there are plenty of communication courses communication degrees in the in department of communication which which has been running for many many years right and but that communication is mostly used for like historically for media communication and not exactly for science so if you but if you learn as a scientist if you go through the scientific process you have a better idea of you know how to communicate science and so i would say anybody is interested in science like studying science communication i would highly highly recommend to do uh, uh follow uh, uh science course in your undergraduate and it it can be mi- i mean now we had opportunity to mix things up where you combine others other topics but it's important to have some kind of science background so it will help you and it will help the person that you are trying to communicate well uh i i think yeah we've already i have pretty much learned uh, a thing or two from you know your vast background um i'm i'm really thankful for you for making the time today to tonight actually to you know attend this podcast uh thank you very much and uh i will hope to see you in another episode hopefully to talk more about science communication thanks thanks i mean it is a delight to talk to you and uh yeah i i mean i i this is what you are doing in science communication and and we do need things like these <laughs> and and so people can listen to them while they are jogging or in the gym or while cooking and it's uh, it's yeah thanks for you know giving me the opportunity and also you know doing science communication yourself i mean the science the way i needed to start the podcast cuz i of course now that i'm into it like i've i've heard some other podcasts that also discuss these issues but for some reason not so many people are like have a science communication podcast or know about science communication podcast and even for the ones that they're out there they're either purely scientific mm. uh, but they don't like cover a lot about the human side of mm. the research right so in, in here i i try to cover like what did you what the research that you did what were the things like the science but also what you've been through as a human being because no nobody really <laughs> hears about the suffering in this part too so hopefully that yeah like you've enjoyed the podcast like i did and uh yes i will uh i will hope that you would be uh, on future episodes where we can discuss more about science communication especially in japan Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.